Take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Last Sunday, we talked about the body of Christ and how as members of the local expression of that body, we've got a role to play. Every one of us has a role to play in that. But in God's sovereignty and in his, the way that he sets things up and designs the body, um, he has designed a system for leadership and for governance, and that's what we're going to talk about today. We've been talking about some essential parts of, of, of church life, and uh, we've worked through now, this is the fifth week of this series, and after this we're going to actually go, in two weeks we're going to go to the book of Romans. We're going to start just working our way through the book of Romans, and I'm looking forward to our study of that book uh, together. But for today, let's go and let's talk about um, church leadership. The results of a survey indicate that the perfect pastor preaches exactly 15 minutes. Who amen right there? <laughs> I should have known. He condemns sin in that 15-minute sermon, but he never upsets anybody. He works from 8 o'clock in the morning to midnight, but he's also the janitor. He makes $50 a week, wears good clothes, buys good books, drives a good car, and gives about $50 a week in the offering. He's 28 years old, but he's been preaching for 30 years. He's got a burning desire to work with teenagers and spends all of his time with senior citizens. The perfect pastor smiles all the time with a straight face because he has a sense of humor that keeps him seriously dedicated to his work. He makes 15 calls daily on church members shut-ins and the hospitalized. He spends all of his time door knocking and is always in his office when needed. Congratulations, you don't have the perfect pastor. <laughs> None of us, nobody could ever live up to that. Nobody could ever live up to what might would be considered the perfect pastor to one person and, and the perfect pastor to somebody else. The good thing is that God's Word very clearly outlines what's a pastor should be and who he should be. We're not just talking about a pastor today, though. We're talking about all of church leadership, and you're going to see as we work through this, we're going to see really four major aspects that I'll highlight here in just a moment. But Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to read verses 11 through 16. I invite you to read along with me. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, what is God's design for church leadership? What's God's design for church leadership? Biblically, what is it? Well, there's four major components to this. There's the congregational, there's deacons, there's elders, and then there is the, there's Jesus, okay? Four major components that we're going to hit today. Now, as we look at this, we've got to understand that it's not one or the other. It's not either or. It's all of it all together. Let's think about a marriage here for a moment, okay? A marriage doesn't work unless there's mutual trust and submission 
and humility that's involved in that marriage. It will not work if you don't have those three things. And it's the same way with church leadership, with all aspects of church leadership and governance. You've got to have that mutual trust, the humility, the submission to each other in order for it to work. Ephesians chapter 4, we see that the saints are to be equipped for the work of the ministry. The end goal is that the body is built up, that there is unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, all the way up to maturity, so that we're no longer children in the faith, but that the body builds itself up in love. That's the end goal, that we mature. Um, how many of you know who I'm talking about when I say Groot from the Marvel superhero series? Okay, if you don't, this is a pretty easy illustration. You can figure it out easily yourself. Put up these pictures. Okay, on one side, you've got Baby Groot. Baby Groot is my kid's favorite Groot. Now, they've never seen the Marvel superhero series, but they just know Groot, okay? All Groot ever says is, I am Groot. And he has a whole language that he uses with I am Groot. But Baby Groot isn't able to accomplish all that needs to be done if he's Baby Groot. He had to grow up at some point and become grown man Groot in order to accomplish what needed to be done in saving the world multiple times. Baby Groot to adult Groot. Baby church to adult church. Immature church to mature church. All of it working together under the leadership model that Jesus has given us in his word. So that's what we're going to look at today is what is God's design for church leadership? What is it that we're supposed to be doing and, and, and what is it supposed to look like? And what I want to talk first, just, just start with talking about congregation. What is the congregation's role in church leadership? We see this first from Matthew chapter 18, and I'm going to read. It's going to be on the screen where you can read along with me, but here's what we find. Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, Jesus says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained a brother. If, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, let him be a, a someone that is not in proper fellowship with you as a church. I want you to, to catch this. Where was it that Jesus said to go if resolution cannot be achieved from individual or a small group? Where, is it, where are they to go? To the church as a whole. The church. Now, the, this tells me that, that the church as a whole is responsible for ensuring that the members are living lives of holiness. That we together are, are accountable in this. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul's writing to the believers in the church in Corinth, and there's a man that's in sin that's a member of the church there. He says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you're arrogant, he says. All do you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. He continues, for though I am absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled, get that, assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you, church, as a whole, to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. In other words, hold this man accountable for his sin. Govern yourselves, church, as a whole. Hold yourself accountable. 
A couple of verses later, actually the next verse, verse 6, Paul talks about how just a little bit of leaven leavens the whole loaf. The whole, the big, is affected by just a very little bit. The church is affected by a very little bit of sin. And what he's saying is, church, deal with even the little sin that is in your midst. Now, the cool thing about this is that later on when Paul writes the second letter back to the church of Corinth, it appears as if he speaks about the discipline and the accountability that took place before, after he wrote the first letter, as if they did it well. He then encourages them to forgive the man and comfort the man. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8, I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Bring him back in. So in all of this, we see the role of leadership that the congregation has in holding the church accountable. That's our role together as a congregation to hold each other accountable. I also think about Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Hey, church, the gospel of Jesus Christ is to be preached pure and undefiled. And if anyone preaches anything contrary to the gospel, then as a whole congregation, deal with it. Don't let it happen. There's other passages that, that I could share that are very similar to the ones we've already looked at. I'm not going to do so for lack of time because I've got a long way to go, but I want to I share with you one more example. Acts chapter 6, the elders gather the whole church together and they, they let them know that there's a need. A plan is put in place based on that need. And in verse 5, we read that the plan to pull deacons together to serve the people, here's what it says, it pleased the whole gathering. A need is found. A plan is put together for the need. The elders come to the church and say, hey, church, here's the need. And it pleased the whole gathering. There was affirmation. There was accountability there in that affirmation of, yes, here is the direction we need to go. Salem Baptist Church has got to hold Salem Baptist Church accountable to not only sound doctrine, to preaching the gospel, but to stay in faithful to the mission, to when needs come up, we say, yeah, we're going to meet this need together as a church. So first, we are congregationally accountable. Next, we are deacon served. We are deacon served. There's really only two passages that tell us anything about the office of deacon. There's Acts chapter 6 that I just referenced, and we're going to read it here in just a moment. And then there's 1 Timothy chapter 3. There's other references all throughout the New Testament to deacons but there's no more clarity about their role and their qualifications than those two passages. Acts chapter 6 is where a need arises because the Hellenists, uh, it's a group of people within the church, are being, dis, uh, being uh, excluded from receiving resources. And, and there's other people who are really frustrated. They're really frustrated. Other people are frustrated. This need arises, okay? Um, Acts chapter 6, starting verse 2, the elders gather the church together, and here's what they say. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom you will appoint, whom, excuse me, we will appoint to this duty. 
but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. That's the reference I made to just a moment ago. What they said pleased the whole gathering. So what do they do? They choose this group of seven men. They raise them up as the first deacons of the church. All right, now, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and once again, it's going to be on the screen where you can read along with me. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The calling of a deacon is a holy calling. It is a call to live a holy life. It's a call to live a a life of service to the church. One of the ways the deacons serve our church is by being a sounding board and an advisory team to the pastors. Based on their service and their being with the church and in the church, how do we as as a whole need to lead the church moving forward? They serve by caring for those people on their deacon list. So if you're a member of our church, you're on a deacon's member list where they are, they are your deacon. There's constantly messages going back and forth between deacons and the church office with prayer, with practical needs. Here's what's going on in this person's life or this person's life. The deacons serve the elements when we partake of the Lord's Supper. The call to serve is a high calling. Pastor Rick referenced this earlier, but Jesus modeled it with his own life, his own life of humility. Next, we are elder-led. Elder-led. In the New Testament, you're going to find several terms used interchangeably. Um, There's elder, there's overseer, there's under-shepherd, shepherd, all to describe what we call pastor. Now, to kind of stay consistent with what we find in the New Testament, I'm going to use the term um, elder as I work through this today, okay? By far, the word elder is the most used all throughout the New Testament. The qualifications for an elder are found in two different places. There's Titus chapter 1 and there's 1 Timothy chapter 3. And I'm going to start with Titus chapter 1. Here's what we find. Paul says, this is why I left you in Crete, Titus, that you may put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. <clears throat> For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And we'll follow that up with 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. You listen to me as I, as I read along. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, 
For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. I want to go back there to the first verse that I read there. If the saying is trustworthy, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. 2016, our church was, um, was looking for a pastor. And there was an initial conversation about, hey, Pastor Kivett, do you think that you might be willing to serve or want to talk with us about serving in that? And there's several people within the church and pulpit committee that came to me to ask that. And, and for each one of them, it, my, my response was, was really simple. Um, first of all, I've got to pray about it. There's a lot more longer story to it than this, just this. I'm giving you the Cliff Notes version. But what I realized is that God's word very clearly says, if any man desires the office of overseer, and then it gives the qualifications. And my prayer was so simple. It was, Lord, I believe the qualifications are there, and I believe that they're being affirmed from other people, godly people around me. But God, I'm not sure that the desire to pastor Salem is there. So if this is of you, you've got to put the desire in my heart. And I prayed that for several months. And y'all, it wasn't just that the Lord gave me a desire. He gave me a burning passion to lead Salem, to see souls saved through the ministry of Salem Baptist Church in the city of Winston-Salem and all around the world. I gave you before the call to a deacon is a holy calling. The call to pastor is a holy, serious calling. And God's word doesn't tread lightly in this. It's very, very clear what those qualifications are. It's very clear the expectations for a pastor. Before we ordain a person for gospel ministry here at Salem, we got to see that they meet these qualifications and that they're proven in their lives. If you look all throughout the New Testament, you're going to see uh, the plurality of elders in a church. In fact, four times in the book of Acts, one time in the book of Titus, and one time in the book of James. You see the plurality of elders is very, very clear. So it's not just one elder, it's multiple elders leading the church. One elder, and you very easily have a situation where there's not accountability. We have accountability in the plurality of elders. These elders don't all have to be paid by the church. They gotta be called by God and they gotta be called by the church. They can be lay elders who assist in leading the church. They can be bivocational. They can be paid exclusively by the church. There's nothing that says that any of that is, is, is wrong. If they are called by God, first of all, that's the first and most important part. If they are called by God and voted upon and called by the church to serve as an elder, then their authority within the plurality of elders is legitimate. The elders are called, first of all, to feed God's sheep with God's word. Feed God's sheep with God's word. And if you're following along in your handout, then you want to fill this in as we go. In John chapter 21, Jesus has his disciples together, and here's what we read. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. This is Jesus commanding 
one of the, his disciples that would later become an apostle and an elder to feed whose sheep? Jesus' sheep. Not Peter's sheep, not Kivet's sheep, no man's sheep. No, they belong to Jesus. Well, what do we, as, as under-shepherds in submission to the chief shepherd who is Jesus, what do we feed the sheep? We feed the word of God. That's where life is found, and that's the true source of spiritual sustenance. To feed anything else doesn't make any sense. Feed the sheep, excuse me, feed God's sheep with God's word. Next, guide the sheep. Guide the sheep. Paul, in speaking to Timothy in, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, says, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Ultimately, the church is guided by the word and the teaching of it. But Paul tells Timothy to watch out for himself and watch out for his teaching. Salvation and eternal security is at stake here. It's not really difficult at all for you to turn the television on and you just see all kinds of gospels preached. The gospel of prosperity. The gospel of good living. But there is only one gospel. And what Paul's telling Timothy here very clearly in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16 is, hey, keep a close watch on yourself and on that teaching Salvation, eternal security for souls is at, stake, is at stake. Each one of our pastors is well aware that we are being observed. People both inside the church and outside are watching to see the way we live our lives, the way we teach, and the way we guide, and the way we instruct. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. I believe, according to God's word, that I am to guide you in faith, not just faith for salvation. Yes, faith for salvation, but faith for living, faith for looking ahead at what God wants to do through us and then guiding based on that. And I tell you, I want to be a person of great faith in our great God and then guide our church in that great faith. The elders are also to protect the sheep, protect the sheep. In Acts chapter 20, Paul's speaking specifically to the elders who are all gathered around to say goodbye. He's about to leave to go to Jerusalem. He doesn't fully know it yet. I think he has a suspicion at this point, but he's going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to be shipped off to Rome to die. As he's gathered these elders together, here's what he says. He says, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Be careful or pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. As pastors and elders, we are under shepherds. We're serving under the leadership and the guidance of the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. And one of the assignments that he has given is for the under shepherds to protect the sheep. In biblical times, the presence of the shepherd did two things. It brought, first of all, it brought calm and peace and comfort to the sheep. But then secondly, it kept the intruders away. So whether that was fierce wolves or thieves or whatever it was, anything that would threaten the good of the sheep, 
The presence of the shepherd drove that away. Jesus is not here on earth with us anymore. But his promise to never leave us or forsake us is very much alive right now through the Holy Spirit and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in believers. But Jesus has also raised up elders and pastors to watch out for the good of his sheep. The elders are to also answer for the sheep. Answer for the sheep. And I'm going to be honest, this one scares me a whole lot. It really does. Because I read Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, where it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So as the author of Hebrews is writing to this church, they're saying obey and, and submit to your leaders. They're watching over your souls because they're going to have to get an account someday. Now, I can honestly say that the majority of the time I serve in this role with joy. I love what God has called me to do. I love studying and preaching the Word of God. I love discipling and counseling. I love most of my job. Did you catch that most? There's times, though, that's not joyful. There's times when the sheep bite each other. There's times when the sheep bite the under-shepherd. Times when the sheep decide that they want to be the shepherd and forget the God-given role, the very important role that they have as a sheep. Now, times like that are few and far between, but they happen. This verse scares me, though, because it doesn't matter whether it's in the joyful times or the not joyful times. I'm still going to have to give an account for how I lead in those times. If I've not been faithful in my teaching and in my leading, then I've got to give an account for that before God. But if I have been faithful with my teaching and leading, and you have rejected the truth of God's word, then you have rejected the spirit-fueled leadership, then you've got to give an account of that rejection before God. But I think about that, and I think about the last part of this whole idea of church leadership, and, and I'm given hope and confidence when I look at this. We are congregationally accountable. We hold each other accountable. We affirm the direction of the church. We're served by our deacons. We are led by our elders, but we are Jesus-ruled. The end results are not all up to me, and they're not up to you. They're not up to anybody else. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. It is Jesus that has complete reign of his church. He's in charge of it, not you and not me. Boy, what a weight is lifted off of my shoulders when I hear that. Then I get to Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, where he tells Peter, he says, I tell you, Peter, you are Peter. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not, shall not prevail against it. It is through the disciples of Jesus that Jesus intends to build his church. And we often think about that verse in light of the last part of it, where Jesus says that the gates of hell will not prevail. But the focus of this verse is the first part of it where it says, I will build my church. Jesus intends to build his church among the nations of the world. Everywhere. 
When the Union Army finally pushed the Confederates back into Richmond, one of Lincoln's generals came running into Lincoln's office and he said, President Lincoln, I am pleased to tell you we have finally pushed the enemy out of our territory and back into his own. Lincoln said to the other general in the room, when will you, my generals, learn that the whole country is our territory? Jesus is not content to be Lord of the church. He died to be Lord of all the earth. Jesus said that he would build his church through the church and that the gates of hell would not be able to keep him away. He will ultimately be victorious. You know, I think a lot of times we treat this verse like it was Jesus saying that he would protect us if we huddled up within these side, inside these four walls, you know, that, that God bless us for and no more. But Jesus said the gates that guard the domain of hell itself will not be able to withhold us. There was a theologian that lived in the middle part, beginning middle part of the 1900s who said, there is not one square inch of the entire cosmos over which the Lord Jesus has not emphatically declared mine. Not mine as in the human, but Jesus, belonging to Jesus. Jesus is not just Lord in here, church. Jesus is Lord. He didn't just die for what's in here. He died to reclaim what's out there, all of it. And the sooner we remind ourselves that Jesus is the one who created us, who shed his blood for our redemption, who secured us a place in heaven, who will return for us one day, and who deserves to be in charge of our church, the better. Now, I look at all of this, and I say, man, Father, your word has clearly outlined what it looks like for us to honor you with our church and its leadership and its governance. None of us holding any kind of power. None of us deserving of any kind of power trip. But understanding that Jesus alone is the one who is to lead his church. I believe that when we keep this biblical view of church leadership prioritized correctly, Jesus can use our church to redeem at least 1% of the lost population of Winston-Salem with the gospel through us. And I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm excited to see him do it. Father, would you help us to honor you with our church? These last five weeks, we spent time talking about some major facets of, of church life. What does membership look like? What does discipleship look like? What does preaching the gospel look like? What does evangelism look like? What does leadership look like according to your word? And I pray that we have been faithful in following your word to do so. But now, Father, would you help us to live it? Father, we pray that Jesus has complete reign of this church. That then, Lord, you can do whatever you want in and through us. We pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.